Comic Books for Beginners is a podcast. You're gonna like it, like it, like it, like it. Jerry and Chris talking Batman. Come and join us. Give it a listen. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners, the one-stop podcast for all your Bat family needs. If you like Batman, you'll love Bat Books for Beginners. Come on down and join us. Hello, and welcome to this edition of TBU's Bat Books for Beginners, episode 175. My name is Jerry. And I'm Chris. And we are your hosts. On Bat Books for Beginners, we will examine story arcs with Batman and related characters. We will give you the historical background of the book, break down the plot and the art, and give you our opinions so you can decide for yourself if they're worth a read. Today's Bat Book we're covering is Batman Detective. Chris, Tell us a little bit about this book. Thank you very much, Jerry. Awesome job with the song today, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's outstanding as usual, partner. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks. Hello, Bat fans. Happy holidays to you, and thank you for downloading and spending a part of your day with us today. Batman Detective was a 144-page softcover trade paperback cover dated April 2007 with a price of $14.99. The cover arc was done by Simone Bianche, who did the covers for all the individual issues that were reprinted here. Bianche is Italian, and I'm pretty sure he's been mentioned on a previous episode of our podcast. This edition reprinted Detective Comics issue numbers 821 through 826. Those issues were cover dated September 2006 through February 2007 and had a cover price of $2.99 for each individual issue. The individual issues appear to be available on Comixology. If you're interested in obtaining this in a hard copy form, this appears to be a bit of a wash between which is cheaper, the individual issues or the trade paperback. There doesn't appear to be a high markup with the individual ballback issues. Used copies of the trade were found online from vendors for as low as $6 to upwards of $30, so there's quite a range there. With the exception of one issue, all of the individual issues were written by Paul Dini. Dini is 60 years old, and he was born in New York, New York. I think the most recent thing I read from Paul Dini was the very emotional, powerful, and gripping graphic novel entitled Dark Knight, and that's Knight with the letter N, Dark Knight, a true Batman story, in which Dini recounts his vicious near-fatal mugging attack that occurred back in 1993 in Los Angeles. It's a book, it's a book worth a read and that I highly, highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Bat fans will certainly know Dini from his work on Batman the Animated Series, where he worked as a writer, editor, and producer on the show. Along with Bruce Timm, he co-created the character Harley Quinn. He's also worked on the oversized graphic novels with Alex Ross. Dini has won five Emmys for his animated television-related work. Before his work on Batman, he's worked on the Tiny Toon Adventures, and before that, the Masters of the Universe series. Uh-huh. Yeah. Dini is married to Misty Lee, a magician, so that makes me wonder if perhaps we'll see Zatanna yes. somewhere in this book. <laughs> <laughs> and for the artists, we had a different array of artists in this book. In issue number uh, 821, we had J.H. Williams III. Williams is known for his very distinctive and creative and imaginative use of layouts. I probably first encountered his work on a Shade Limited series, which was spun off from DC's Starman from the 90s. Mm-hmm. He's also worked on the title Chase, which ran for 10 issues, but I really started to notice his stuff when he worked on the title Promethea, which was written by Alan Moore under the America's Best Comics line. 
Batman fans may be more familiar with Williams' 25-issue run on Batwoman. Not the current volume, but the first volume that ran from the years 2010 to 2013 that ended due to creative differences in the editorial decisions. Williams has won both Harvey and Eisner Awards. Don Kramer did the primary artwork for issue numbers 822, 824, and 826. Kramer is 48, and he was born in Seoul, South Korea. But fans may be familiar with his past work on the Nightwing title. Kramer also penciled Wonder Woman when J. Michael Straczynski wrote the title. Rounding out our artists, which I'm afraid I couldn't find much background information on, we had Joe Benitez, who has done some work for Top Cow. He did the pencils for the Poison Ivy issue, which was issue number 823. Mm-hmm. Marcos Mars did the pencils for Detective number 825, which was the Dr. Phosphorus issue. Mm-hmm. Mars is from Brazil. Mars is first mainstream work appeared in Marvel Comics over 10 years ago in the second volume of Miss Marvel. He's also done work on DC's Catwoman, Batman Confidential, and the Darkest Night miniseries. Staying with this issue, there was one issue which was written by someone other than Paul Dini. This was written by Royal McGraw. This was for the Dr. Phosphorus chapter. He had a few other Batman-related writing credits around this time, but nothing too extensive. According to his website, he's done work for the Sci-Fi Channel, and he's the executive producer for Pixelberry Studios. Over on Amazon.com, this trade paperback has a rating of 3.8 stars out of 5, based on 15 reviews. But how will Jerry and I (laughs) review this? (laughs) Stay tuned, dear listeners. And with that, I shall turn it back over to you, Jerry. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so Chris and I are going to be talking a little bit about this book after a few messages from some of our friends. Hello. Do you enjoy movie scores? Do you like science fiction? Do you like fantasy? And do you like movies? Uh, uh, everything's under control, situation normal. What happened? Uh, has like weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? Well, I have a podcast for you, Soundtrack Alley. It's a podcast where I take you on a journey through the time of my childhood and beyond to give you a glimpse into the world of movies, science fiction, fantasy, and other films that touch me on a personal level. You'll also enjoy interviews from film composers from famous movies from the past or even current times. Enjoy the interaction I have with guests on my show every so often, and check out other shows that share in guest spots. So sit back, relax, and let the soundtrack world wash over you, and check out Soundtrack Alley. You'll love it. Welcome back. So here is the story of Batman Detective, 
Now, this is a little different from our usual format. This is a series of six one-shots, all separate, and we'll cover them and discuss them separately. So this one is from Detective Comics 821, called The Beautiful People. Someone is passing themselves off as a wealthy Gothamite and robbing the city's rich. Batman interrupts one who's accosting a wealthy woman and kicks him into an oncoming train, killing him. The deceased man is Johnny Lange, a small-time crook that has somehow figured out how to infiltrate the city's elite. Lange doesn't seem bright enough to do this on his own, however. So who is helping him? Bruce Wayne looks for clues at an exclusive nightclub, a gallery opening, and finally, the Peregrinators Club, which is an old-time Gotham haunt for outdoorsy, adventurous bluebloods. At the club, Bruce runs into a very drunk man named Matthew Atkins. Atkins seems to be drunk enough to get an assist. He needs an assist to his apartment, uh, who, which is also in the club, by club employee uh, or maybe waiter Eddie Hansen. The club's major domo is Ronald Edwards, who tells Bruce that Atkins is having financial difficulty. At an after-hours nightclub, Bruce meets Vanessa Ford, who says she's a reporter for the Gotham Financial Times, and she wants a story. Kind of. Or maybe she wants a little late-night fun times with Bruce. Bruce flirts and leads her on, but then he says he'll call her the next day. He gets her number, but he figures that her number is fake and she isn't really who she says she is. Her number is written on the back of a fast food joint's receipt, so Batman stakes out the greasy spoon that's on a bad side of town. Batman spots her going into the building, accompanied by two toughs. She's part of the gang of thieves, led by a mirror-masked kingpin named Facade. Facade taught the team how to pass as swells. Batman and Robin break into the building and round up the gang, all except Facade, and leave them for the GCPD. Batman knows that Facade's next stop will be the Peregrinators Club. Batman goes to the club and finds Ronald Edwards breaking into the rich member's files. He's leaking information about Gotham's rich to Facade, who also shows up at the club. After a fight, Batman beats Facade and unmasks him. The gang leader is Eddie Hansen, who Bruce realizes was very strong, strong enough to lift the drunk Matthew Atkins. Bruce realizes that he does not miss the life of a rich playboy. And though it was interesting visiting that lifestyle, the cape and cowl are his preference. And that's the end of that story. <laughs> What'd you think, Chris? Well, my first opinion was William's art really shines in this book, and this was probably artwork-wise my favorite chapter of the whole volume. On page five, there's a thought scene of Batman, and he's just encircled by his rogues gallery, and it was really, really striking. And then in the very last page, uh, if you know are familiar with William's work, he – does these panel layouts in such a way that are very creative. And on the last page, there's a panel that's uh, shaped like a outline of a bat, which I really thought was great. I think uh, for fans of Williams, this might be something that's overlooked where you don't think that he did this particular issue. Uh, fans are probably be familiar with Prometheo, of course, and his work on Batwoman, obviously. But there was this issue, and if you are a huge Williams fan, this is something uh, really worth seeking out. I thought the artwork was brilliant in this. The character of Assad, uh Decent, not great, but uh, not not uh, not terrible by any means. This was probably 
of all the chapters, one which was landed right in the middle for me. How about you? I, I enjoyed this. I thought that the uh, one thing, the like you said, the art was 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 good. I particularly like the colors in this. With uh, John, what's it, John Khaleesi? Uh, Khaleesi's mm. did the colors. They're very varied. You know, you go from section to section, and it goes from you know vibrant reds to moody blues, and and then greens in the middle of the page, and just a lot of textures. It definitely keeps the story going. The lines, you know, the faces have a lot of character in them. Uh, particularly, there's a couple of panels with Alfred, and I really like the way he draws Alfred. Uh, so I, I agree. This art is uh, a, is a notch above uh, no, what we normally get from some of these uh, some of these books. Yep, great. So uh, in terms of the story, uh, I did have one a little bit of confusion uh, in it that uh, was was in fact Edwards leaking info to Facade. Do you know, do you remember, or were you able to figure out, or was it really two different crimes? I thought it was the former, but I could be mistaken. I think Dini almost overwrote this story in such a way where it got to be a little muddled and confusing. Mm-hmm. So I just didn't question it. It's almost sometimes when I watch an old episode of Rockford Files, I can't find, quite follow what's going on and what the villains are doing or how Rockford actually found the clue to get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. but I just went with it. You know, it's one of those things where I think, um, I gave it a pass. I, I, I almost, I almost gave up trying to figure it out, but just let it play out. And I think I've, I felt, I felt it was almost the former of of of, of your theories, not the latter one. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I felt too. Um, but it, it was kind of, it was kind of hard, a little hard to tell. And and I think we'll, this will be kind of a repeating as we go through these stories. I think this will repeat about the mystery, quote unquote, mystery part of these stories. Yes. So let's move on to the next story, Enigma. Consulting Detective. Eddie Nigma, who you may also know as the Riddler, has gone straight and he's working as a detective in Gotham. He tries to curry favor with Bruce Wayne by getting him off of a murder rap that Bruce could have gotten himself out of very easily. The deceased is a friend of, a friend of Bruce's named Carrie Bishop. Nigma plays it up for the crowd of cops and reporters and Bruce lets him get away with it. Someone has impersonated Bruce, but who? Batman uses the Bat computer to research Carrie's background. She was dating uh, one man named Greg Lanner, who had been arrested on a drunken disorderly at a nightclub. Batman visits Greg. Apparently, he got angry at Carrie for hanging out with the rich Bruce Wayne. She had always goaded Greg, telling him that she could do better than him. Batman goes to the club, and the bartender confirms that Greg was there until well after Carrie would have been killed. Nigma runs into Batman at the club and leads him down some rickety old stairs into a tunnel. The two discuss the handcuff marks on Greg's wrist. Batman thinks he got the, he got the marks when he struggled with the police. Nigma leads him to a BDSM club where he really got the marks. Lanner could have used the tunnels to escape detection. The two go to Lanner's apartment, and there is gunfire from his window. Batman enters and sees that Lanner is dead and that there's a suicide note and a confession. Batman notices blood on Riddler's shoe. He follows the blood stains down the hallway to a bloody file cabinet as Riddler talks on the phone to the woman that hired him to solve Carrie Bishop's murder, Sarah Morton. 
Batman visits celebrity impersonator Derek Lewis, who admits to impersonating Bruce Wayne, and was hired via a signed cash payment sent to his P.O. box. Riddler gets credit for solving the case of Carrie Bishop. Sarah Morton congratulates Nigma in the back of her limo. She gets a call saying that she is the one that killed Carrie Bishop and Greg Lanner. She was Carrie's father's personal aide and was raiding her trust fund. She got Riddler the job so the media circus would make real detective work difficult for the GCPD. It turns out that the limo driver is none other other than Commissioner Gordon, and the GCPD is waiting for her. Eddie loses his fee and realizes that he had been played by Batman all along. And that's that story. What'd you think? Well, this was a very nice uh, roundabout way of coming from point A to point B. We really highlighted uh, Eddie's ego. Mm -hmm. We have Batman being the mastermind, figuring it all out and laying this all before us. And the reader gets uh, sucked in along with this. And it it would really played out. It almost played out like a TV detective episode of any show where in the final uh, few scenes – closing minutes of the show we get the uh the re- big reveal and i really love how the big reveal is played out here not so much with the uh clues leading up to it but i thought how it was uh, all done was really really masterful with the criminal thinking they just got away with it and they're about to make their escape and nope right at that moment <laughs> it all becomes undone one of the things too is uh we see eddie going into the pi business and this was a bit uh, – well, I don't know if it's almost as common as uh, when you watch an old uh, Batman episode or, or a story arc with, involving the Penguin where he's trying to go straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a few scenes where in uh, – I think in Gotham City Sirens number nine back in the day, uh, he offers his ser- services to uh, Harley, Catwoman, and Ivy. Yep. Uh, there was a recent Saturday morning Justice League action short where – where he's offering his services to Green Arrow and Wonder Woman mm-hmm. to find Batman, who was kidnapped by the Joker. So this is some something of a semi-recurring uh, type of bit. Mm-hmm. I thought it was okay. Um, I, I kind of prefer to see Eddie Moore as the villain than someone trying to go straight, but overall I really like the story. How about you, Jerry? Yeah, I like the story too. I, I, I really like, and I remember that some, of the, uh, some of those older titles that you mentioned of uh, the Riddler going straight and being a PI. And I kind of, I like that ab- about him. You know, he's he's going straight, but, you know, not 100% straight. You know, he's, he's like, if he gets an angle, he's probably going to take it or be sorely tempted to take it. Uh, so I, I like that basic idea that not only is he a detective, but he's kind of like a bad detective, right? He's, he's not the greatest. He's not Batman. Yeah. <laughs> And he reminds me of, uh, again, some of those detectives in the Ellery Queen TV show back from the 70s where, you know, these were the, you know, the big ones that that these kind of media detectives that, you know, John Houseman played one, I think. And he's going to make a big show about solving the crime. And and Ellery's kind of like just goes along and boom, you're totally wrong. This is what happened. Yeah, that's a great callback. Wasn't John Hillerman one of those guys, too, in sort of that uh, quasi-circle? Hillerman, yes, yes. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Great, great callback. Oh, Uh, yeah. I love that show. And this reminds me of that a little bit. 
Uh, the art again is very good, and I'm going to go back to the uh, the same color. I think it's John Kalis, K A L I S Z, and I really like the textures and the the first of all the variety from section of the story to section. It, it looks very very different, and there are some really beautiful, vivid, and kind of. Uh, kind of, there's a lot of texture to some of this art. It looks very rounded and very real. Uh, there's one particular scene where uh, Batman and the Riddler are in the Batmobile, and Riddler says, "You know, they're sitting next to each other, driver's seat and passenger seat." And uh, Riddler says, "You know, I don't think I've ever been inside the Batmobile uh, conscious." Yes, <laughs> it's and Batman real. says, "Just don't touch anything." Yeah. <laughs> so I, there's a lot of touches like that in, in in a lot of these stories, and I really, really like that. Um, you know, art and the story, like we said before, you know, some of these mysteries, it's like you're not going to figure it out, right, as a reader. You're not going to go through and and follow the clues and everything. That is not what these stories are about. That's not what Sherlock Holmes mysteries are about or any, you know, Hercule Poirot, Ellery Queen. You, you're never going to really figure it out. It's it's uh, these mystery stories. You just have to give them what they are. And I enjoyed it. I did too. For what it's worth, um, if, if I have any slight quibble with it, now this is just very, very minor because I really like this story a lot. Mm-hmm. We're, we're told that um, Edward or Riddler suffered like a memory loss and we're not sure what happened and I had to do some digging for that because mm-hmm. I was curious and I, I think there are huge fans of certain characters, Riddler being one in particular, and they might wonder, well, what, what happened here? This was in along the lines where uh, he had a coma and this was shortly after the events of Infinite Crisis, where, of all things, uh, he was struck in the head by uh, the Shiny Knight's mace. And mm. this is like, you know, we, we recently covered the one year later stories on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, Eddie was in a coma for the one year. So uh-huh. he comes out of this and he, we're not sure uh, where, where he is. And at this point, this sort of picks up with the events right after the one year later where uh, he's got the memory loss and now he's kind of wavering. He's still got that uh, mental capacity and uh, genius with his pr- mental processes, but he really doesn't know, is, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? We're not sure. And one of the other elements, too, is does he know Batman is Bruce Wayne? Right. This is something that he discovered back in, I think this was the Hush storyline, where they diagnosed him with a terminal illness, he goes to Lazarus Pet, he gets all this uh, mental clarity, figures out Bruce is Batman. I don't think that is alluded to here. Thankfully, we're not bogged <laughs> down with other little uh, uh, nuances and, and what have you's. It, with the story just plays out for what it is. We know Eddie's a PI. You go with, with it. Yeah. So that was really good. The character Riddler would go on uh, in future issues to have his own more drama and be depicted in various means of his uh, villainy, if you will. Uh, he he uh, would have a daughter. He'd become involved in a case with Nightwing. And he would later become more violent and revert back to that evil persona again. If you wonder where the timeline is that's sort of where we're at with the character's continuity but as for a standalone story i thought this was great as it was yeah i agree now we'll just have one one minor kind of uh parental warning they do walk through a a bondage club uh it is not terribly um you know 
there's not a, it's it's not terribly uh, you know exposing bodies and stuff, but there is definitely some strong suggested art here. Yes, uh, I, I really tried to see where I landed with this on the graphicness of it. I. Hmm. I, I didn't think it was that bad. It certainly could have been a lot worse, I thought. But, um, yeah, I, I think uh, just put your feelers out. This might be one you might just want to eyeball yourself if you're a parent before uh, passing this on. Definitely, definitely. Okay, great. So then the next story It's called Stalked. Poison Ivy is reading in her Arkham Asylum cell when she is brutally attacked by some kind of a gnarled, woody, vine, tree-like creature that crashes through the prison walls. She uses her blood to fight off the attacker. She's able to get out of Arkham and run across a field where she continues to be attacked by grasses and trees and vines. She makes her way to GCPD headquarters where she asks for help. Batman arrives and gives her some knockout pills and takes her to the Batcave. Batman puts her in a sterile tube that has the air filtered so there isn't any plant matter so she can't cause trouble if she gets a mind to. Batman leaves Robin to look after Ivy while he goes to her old home. Among her brilliant scientific theories, he finds a DVD. He takes it back to the Batcave and they watch the video. Ivy had created a giant plant creature that digested humans that insulted or otherwise bothered her. The humans she killed became plants with a mind of their own, and they're mad at her. Mad enough to kill her. The creatures invade the Batcave and attack the Cape Crusaders as well as Ivy. She pleads with the people she killed, but to no avail. They tell her to call them Harvest as they begin to envelop her. Luckily, Batman hits the weed killer concoction, uh, hits the weed with a weed killer concoction hooked up to the sprinkler system, and kills the creature. Ivy returns to her cell in Arkham, but now she fears plants. The end. Uh, what do you think? Well, boy, uh, this is a definitely different depiction of Ivy that mm-hmm. we're more unaccustomed to seeing up to this point well, since we uh, started our pairing, Jerry. Yeah. This is a more violent depiction, and I, I, I'm left to question which poison ivy am i seeing here is it sympathetic sympathetic or not sympathetic as a character uh which is it i you know and to be fair i can see taking revenge if, if for a justified means but this this was a little i was a little more disturbed with the depiction of ivy and far be for me to question paul dini and and, and how to treat batman characters but boy you know um if you look at how ivy is depicted now in current titles, especially with the uh, recent uh, Batgirl Birds of Prey. This is someone who teams up and does um, work, and uh, you know you can sort of get behind her cause. Uh, I really like the artwork in the story, but I, I, it was the depiction of Ivy that I had a problem with. How about you? Totally agree. Uh, that was the big problem I had. She is an out-and-out villain in this. And, uh, and it's kind of... I don't know. I think they're trying to make her a little coquettish, like, you know, feeding feeding people to plants is wrong. You know, silly old me, you know, fiddle dee dee, who knew? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of, I think they're trying to make it cutesy. And, uh, you know, she's, she's pretty, 
um, erotically dressed in this. She's very sexualized here and a definite villain, definite trouble. And, uh, you know, this is not an Ivy that's uh, Poison Ivy League approved, I don't think. <laughs> yes, yeah. There was one scene where uh, I think she's playing 20 questions with Robin in the mm-hmm. Batcave, which was sort of uh, – uh, I don't know if it was, I would call it, quote, disturbing, but it was it was sort of unusual with there was a little bit of a flirtiness going on there, which was um, interesting <laughs> as yeah. how it was depicted. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it crossed the line per se, but uh, I, I thought it, w- it could be close. Yeah. Um, I'm there, trying to f- put it into words. Help me out, Jerry. There, there was uh, one page in particular. So she's in the in the tube in the bad cave, and she's kind of lounging around and stretching out, and you know, looking all cutesy. And she's like, "So, what do you boys do around here for fun?" And there's just there is a, a very funny kind of overlay of Robin just looking at her askance, just like, "What are you up to? I'm not falling for this." Right. Right. So. You it, know, it was done as funny, and that's okay, I guess, but uh, I think it's it's not handling the character very well. True, and I'm trying to at least meet Dinny halfway if there's some type of psychological imbalance with the character, and I, I will, I'll grant you that if, if there's evidence of it, but – I, I hate seeing the. I, I just don't see the consistency as we we see here up to this point in the material that we've covered as, as being a little more of a sympathetic character, mm. and recently in comics as a more sympathetic character. But this is just a, a total slant in in, in one eighty in the other other direction. I thought. Yeah. So not only is she is she she's uh, a villain, but then she's saying, you know, Batman, help me, save me. Uh, not great. Not great. Jerry, let's talk about the appearance of Poison Ivy herself. Back in Once Upon a Time, I can remember when Pamela Isley was, you know, she's a Caucasian woman with brown hair. Then all of a sudden her skin tone comes to a light shade of green at some point. Then it comes a little darker shade and then a little darker shade. And then here out on thinking this issue, we were full out green. Yep, full out green. And full out green tone. And said, you know, uh, do you, do you have any personal preference on how you how you like your Ivy depicted? <laughs> I, I don't mind. Uh, I, I I like the the color combination of green and her vibrant red hair. So yes. I mean, her hair is almost orangey red in this. Uh, uh, you know, color wise, from a color scheme standpoint, I like the I like the scheme. I I think it makes her uh, other more otherworldly, less a human villain, and more like a like a force of nature kind of villain. Uh, which I do like, but not as I think for me it's it's the uh, personality depiction here that really bothers me. Understood. Great, you, great answer. What do you think about her in terms of how they make her look? Well, I'm trying to remember when this all went down and when this is sort of becoming canon and not canon. I uh, I always thought. Ivy was more of the Caucasian type character. I can see a bit of a green hue, and I don't know if it was, I'm trying to remember if this was in the comics or if it was done in the animated series where she uh, first adopted this look, and uh, people sort of took the ball and ran with it. You know, and even back in the day, I can remember when she didn't really have that con- control over plants in her first initial appearances. You know, the, the <laughs> like 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 now. Uh, 
you know, I remember an issue, I think it was Justice League of America 110. She was in the part of the Injustice Society gang. And almost, she almost had to use a weapon to kind of elevate the control of her plants that she mm. had where it wasn't this mental thing. And it's, it's weird how this character's, uh, progressed mm-hmm. from, from being this person who was had this fascination, love obsession with Batman, mm-hmm. to evolving into this uh, character who was the assistant of Wo- Jason Rudrew mm-hmm. and had the control of her plants, and she didn't need any by other means, and she was suddenly immune to all these toxins, whereas before that never really happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't know if we have a consensus opinion. It almost depends on whoever's writing her as to, yeah. you know, what her skill set and power set is to, to whatever degree, mind mm-hmm. you. Um, and I just don't know. I, I kind of some, I kind of like to land somewhere in the middle where she's got some vulnerabilities, but she, she is a very powerful and one of the more interesting characters in the, the uh, Batman verse. I agree. I, I think she's a terrific character and I think she's still a work in process, in progress because I think there, you know, an anti-hero, whether you consider her a villain or a hero or an anti-hero somewhere in between, I think that in-between area is much more interesting than somebody who is just always going to be good. I'm just a good guy. That's, you know, uh, the conflict that they can put her in. In I think that the... Um, her the recent you know cycle of life and death the recent mini by uh, that they they recently did I thought that that is more interesting. I, yes, I'm so glad you mentioned it because I thought it was a brilliant. Yeah. Yes, and and here it's not as interesting. It's cutesy and she's violent and she's trying to be adorable. And well, if that's how you like your Ivy, you'll like it. But it's not as interesting as as she can be, in my opinion. Great point. All right, so. We're going to take a little bit of a break now to uh, get some messages from some of our friends. And Chris and I will be right back. Trekker Talk. A fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at trekkertalk.com. So now we're going to hear the story of Night of the Penguin. Penguin has Batman in shackles, dangling over the top of a tank of ravenous leopard seals. Bats knocks the seals out with ketamine and disables Penguin's staff. Penguin says he wasn't really trying to kill him. He even let him keep his bat utility belt. It's just a a little disagreement among friends, right? Batman lets him go. The next night, Bruce Wayne attends Penguin's reopening of the Iceberg Lounge with the cell phone-addicted socialite Jackie Vasseau as his date. As his date runs off, Bruce finds Lois and the Riddler are also at the party. Jackie and Bruce go into a room where a poker game is going on. One of the players, Mr. ZZZ, 
Or I wonder how you were going to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, that'll be the only time I do that. He has extreme narcolepsy, and he's coming in and out of sleep. Also, he is winning big. Too big. Penguin's master plan is to open a chain of iceberg lounges and make a fortune selling t-shirts to wealthy patrons that like the idea of being around dangerous criminals. He and Riddler think that if they can just stay just barely on the good side of the law, that they can make fortunes. Penguin's upset to find out that Mr. Z has won over a million dollars at his poker table. Bruce has the bat computer tied into his phone. He scans Mr. Z's body and sees that he has a fiber optic implant in his head, and he's presumably receiving information about the cards. Bruce gets on the phone to Zatanna to figure out who might be the poker genius giving Z the information. She gives him a name, Ivar Loxius. Ivar Loxius is tied to a bed in a seedy hotel room, and a thug is forcing him to give him poker instructions. Z is ruining Penguin, and Lois is getting plenty of photos and quotes from the distraught Cobblepot. Z leaves the gala with his winnings and goes to the hotel room. Batman has traced the signal in his in Z's head and follows him. After some fisticuffs, Batman shorts out the implant, which disables Z. With his caps, captors disabled, Loxius frees himself from his cuffs. He appreciates the flair of the bad guys and decides not to press charges. Batman returns the stolen money to Penguin and tells him to stay on the good side of the law. The end. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Uh, this was one of the better chapters, in my opinion. This uh, story opened, I think, if I'm using my terminology right, in Media's Rays, where we see Batman already in shackles right on the splash page. We wonder how he got there. We're quickly immersed in the story. We're quickly filled in and brought up to speed with uh, the events leading up to this. We got a great cameo by Lois Lane. Uh, as I mentioned previously before, we've got a Zatanna appearance, which uh, <laughs> this was really nice. And we've got somewhat of an interesting, albeit not interesting character, the, the Mr. Z, Z, Z or Z, uh, and, and how this is done. We, and we get uh, Penguin sort of being played off the butt, trying to get his club off the ground, and just uh, it all in all made for a really, really good chapter, in my opinion. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. I, I'm going to give this uh, similar uh, remarks about the art. I think it's maybe not as uh, not as visually exciting as some of the other stories, but it's still very the tone, the uh, the palette of this story keeps things moving. And like you say, the Zatanna, uh, she's she's on the phone talking to uh, t- floating in the air in, in her uh, her makeup room talking to Bruce. It's pretty funny. Yes, and I like how she alludes to the fact, yes, that she automatically owes Batman a favor. So yeah. you know. I- Makes you wonder what uh, what exactly that was for, you know. But he's cashing in his chips, so this was all in all really interesting. Yeah, Do, well. Lois Lane, did you like how she was depicted here, Jerry? Yeah, sure. She she's you know it, she's just in it just a little bit, uh, but she's got uh, she wants to find a story, and she's she's loving seeing Cobblepot being so distraught and like, oh, I'm losing all my monies, and getting <laughs> pictures of him all upset. And, I mean, it was funny. It's funny. There was another funny bit too. Was like uh, Bruce was paired 
paired up with this um, blonde yeah. that uh, was arranged by Alfred, and then Bruce just sort of looks at her. He's just so he's kind of staring out the window of this limo. He's just so miserable and unamused by this woman who's already making plans, and yeah. she's going to have to tell Alfred, "I'm, I'm going to get a hint into screening these women you're setting me up with for the next time, next time I have to go out on the town with somebody." So yeah. I thought that was a bit funny bit as well. So do I. So and you know it's interesting the tone of this uh, this story is very light and. Just for example, you know, at the beginning, like you said, he's being dangled. He's captured by Penguin and he's dangling over, you know, these dangerous animals. And then, you know, Penguin's like, come on, I really wasn't trying to hurt. If I was trying to hurt you, I would have hurt you, <laughs> you know? And he's yeah. like, ah, okay, you can go. And it's ridiculous, right? You'd be like, nobody would allow that. He never would. But it's the tone of this. It's, it's very lighthearted and uh, needs to be taken that way. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know what more I can add, but this was really, really a good one, too. I, I always like how the staff is uh, sort of dressed in the theme of the club, and yep. even the uh, one of his employees tries to come after Batman with a knife, but he takes her out, and it was, you know, she's, she's doing her duty, you know, <laughs> to, to that, and, you know, and there, there's comments about Penguin's staff and the, the, the undertakings it is trying to get this off the ground on an opening night, and you almost – a little bit feeling sorry for Ozzy at this point. <laughs> yeah. you know, poor, poor guy, poor but guy. you know. <laughs> yeah, this all in all, this this was one of the um, enjoyable reads of the book. I agree. I totally agree. Okay, the next story: the return of Doctor Phosphorus. Alex Satorius, also known as Doctor Phosphorus, is being kept alive in a vat at Cadmus Research Labs. He had previously been crushed, but his superpowers helped him create new organs. One of the scientists looking after him, Dr. Church, was a nuclear scientist that was part of a scam that resulted in Sartorius's powers. He also stole Alex's life savings and wants to understand his physiology so he can make money off of it. Phosphorus is able to escape from the lab and leaves it in flames. The lab is burned to the ground, and Commissioner Gordon and Batman are looking over the ruined building to find the fire's cause. They see footprints scorched into the floor. Gordon grabs a glowing ember, and it explodes, burning his hand. Batman can smell that it is phosphorus, and figures that Dr. Phosphorus has somehow survived his battle with Ted Knight. Not from the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> Very good. In the hospital, there is one of the har- horribly burned survivors from the fire. One of the hospital's doctors runs into Batman on the rooftop and explains that he was part of a group that stole Phosphorus's money. Phosphorus is likely out for revenge. Phosphorus joins them on the rooftop and confirms, confirms the revenge hypothesis. Batman isn't able to stop him from killing the doctor, even by pouring a giant tank of water on him. Phosphorus, the element, burns even with water. The last man alive that cheated Dr. Phosphorus was Rupert Thorne. Thorne is in Blackgate Penitentiary, and Gordon is trying to get information from him. Phosphorus shows up in the cell, looking for vengeance. Gordon's gun gets melted. Batman shows up and hits Phosphorus with some baking soda bombs. Baking soda smothers Phosphorus. Batman knocks out the Burning Man, and they hustle him off to a containment facility. The end. What'd you think? Jerry, I kind of have a soft spot for Dr. Phosphorus. By no means is he my favorite or even in my top ten favorite uh, Batman 
rogues gallery villains. But when he started out in the Inglehart run back in Detective in the 1970s, this was sort of uh, one of the players that was initially put into place with that storyline. What appearances he's had that has been sporadic, but he's always been somewhat of a worthy foe for Batman. Mm-hmm. And as you've been going along and recounting these stories, it's not so much the villain itself, but I was really taken with the art as well. And I had to look this up. I want to give credit where credit's due. John Kalish uh, was the colorist on this, and Jared K. Fletcher did the letterings. On the opening splash page, we see the lettering uh, emblazoned right above the splash called The Return of Dr. Phosphorus! Exclamation point. And the lettering is done in such a way which is really evocative of, of a 40s or 30s uh, movie horror poster. You know, this was really, really brilliantly done. And the lettering for Dr. Phosphorus, whenever he speaks with the colors, was just really, you, you mentioned like the watercolor pastel look. Mm-hmm. I've really got a feel of that here. I really thought art-wise, this was, again, one of the more brilliant chapters. Story-wise, interesting. Batman using his wits about him and his clever uh, bit of scientific knowledge in chemistry, taking out Dr. Phosphorus by common baking soda. That was really cool. So, uh, a decent, solid read. Not not an excellent one, but by no means a, a very bad one. This was this was a good read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a you know very straightforward story. You have Doctor Phosphorus. He's going on a revenge thing. Batman tries to kill him. Can't figure it out. Then <clears throat> gets an idea, uh, kind of uh, from Alfred actually in the story. Alfred's uh, stomach is upset, and he's going to get some baking soda to calm his stomach. It's like ha ha baking soda. And uh, finally figures out a way to beat him. So, I mean, it's very straightforward, but the art in this is, you know, the, so really unique. And I think uh, the coloring, again, by the same fella, uh, is uh, watercolory, very kind of classical in, in appearance. Uh, you know, very vivid colors. And I, I really like that. I did think, you know, on my monitor, I, I read this uh, story on a computer, not on a, not in a um, actual trade paperback. Uh, the that green light that they that they use, uh, the light um, characters they use for his lettering when Phosphorus speaks was a little bit light. It was a little hard to read on my monitor, so I would ding it a little for that. But straightforward story, like you say, not fantastic, but but. Um, you know, made sense and a good detective story. Good deal. All right. So the last story is called Sleigh Ride. How do you spell Sleigh Ride, Jerry? S-L-A-Y-R-I-D-E. Oh, that guy. Oh, is it's okay. tricky. It's a little joke. <laughs> so <laughs> it's Christmas time, obviously. Robin is on the bat motorcycle trying to get away from some gun runners he was trying to bust. They're closing in on him when a car pulls up and tells him to get in. He does. The driver is Joker. Oops. No. Uh, I hate when that happens. Robin gets gassed and is knocked out. And he wakes up in the passenger seat all tied up with Christmas lights. And he's gagged. Joker drives around Gotham, marveling at his luck to have stumbled upon the situation. He starts hitting holiday shopper pedestrians, so knocking them over with their packages going everywhere. Also, he stole the car he's driving from the Jokerfied couple who are stashed in the back seat. Robin begins to work on his ropes. Joker stops at a jack-in-the-box type uh, fast food restaurant and ends up shooting the drive-thru manager, as Joker's will. 
Joker pulls off Robin's gag and asks him to plead for the lives of a group of children and a Santa Claus. Robin replies with the Marx Brothers quote, You can't fool me. There ain't no sanity clause. This delights the Joker, who doesn't kill the kids. The two do argue about which movie the quote came from. While they're talking, Robin's been able to free his hands, and he lands a punch on the Joker's face and uses the Joker's own gas to daze him and knock him out of the car into traffic. Joker isn't killed, and he gets away. But Batman tells Robin that he did well to get out of Joker's clutches to fight another day. The end. Well, what'd you think? This was probably my favorite of the lot, and it... Not by much, but this was probably the favorite a lot. I'm a sucker for Joker stories. People would come up to me and say, Chris, you know, come on, Robin Robin gets kidnapped by the Joker. How, how, how lame is that? No, this actually kind of worked for me and how it all played off and you had this interplay with Robin and sort of a battle of wits ensues while they're in, they're in this car ride in the snow. I really like how this worked. A typical Joker-esque scene, like you said, when he's giving his drive-through order, he says it so fast, and the, the person on the speaker can't identify with him, and, and all this. You, you can really grasp the uh, insanity of the villain that's playing out here, and you really get some insights as to the typical Joker behavior. I think Denny really has a handle on Joker's. Some may disagree with me with respect on how he treats Harley Quinn. That's something for the other show, and I, I can definitely see someone's point with that. Yeah. As a standalone story here with how this played out, I thought it was a great story. Right. Yeah, I, I thought so, too. It's, again, a very simple story, but entertaining, you know, definitely entertaining. And this is I, I'm a little a little more hesitant on Joker because of, you know, the, the Harley. Yeah, sometimes he's been brought in to do some pretty awful things. And uh, in this case, he's just creepy and dangerous and funny. And uh, th- this is, again, a much lighter hand uh of storytelling um and i enjoyed it i thought it was uh it was very interesting and uh there's some again great art in here uh the same colorist i'm going to give another shout out to the colors in this the greens of the joker the joker looks terrific uh and there are a lot of there are a couple flashback scenes that are done shown a little differently there are some the Joker's face. He's he's uh, kind of grinning. He's got a kind of a, a crazy smile face, but not disturbing like the I peeled my skin off face. That, <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah, I thought it was terrific. Great. All right. So overall, now based on you know all of these stories, uh, what how would you rate this collection? Jerry, you know, I'm glad you asked because one of my main gripes over the Fast Pew podcast is that we've reviewed stories that seem moot or have been retconned with current DC Rebirth books. I thought that these stories, for the most part, have really held up and they're all good standalone stories. Mm -hmm. For me, this was a bit refreshing to see stories uh, that were contained instead of we get these big multi- a chaptered, yeah. overblown arcs, you know, they're just really, really feeling padded. I, I like this as a change of pace. And, you know, to me, I always get nostalgic. This harkened back when I was a younger kid, back in my comic book buying days where I can remember when, uh, a single issue told one single story and that, that I, I really enjoyed it. This was a good change of pace. One thing I forgot to mention in my notes prior, 
in the Riddler chapter, we had a nice appearance of Roxy Rocket, oh, yeah. and uh, this was her first chronological historical appearance. Uh, was way back in Batman Adventures Annual Number One, but keep in mind that was based on the animated series. Mm-hmm. The appearance she had here was her first non-animated comic book based appearance. And some are going to say, "Okay, now the characters in canon." So we had some nice inclusions here. There were some great cameo appearances. Overall, I really, really liked this book. How about you? I did too. I, you know, we're, we're so tied into these Batman stories having these long arcs and you know multiple chapters and everything. You, you almost forget how much fun a one-shot mystery can be. These aren't like complicated stories. They're not mind-blowing. Like, oh my gosh, how I can't believe what kind of creativity. These are very straightforward, but a lot of fun and. This is Batman as a detective, you know, trying to figure out a small problem. And, you know, no no mystery story. Like I mentioned this before, no mystery story. You can't really find the clues in an Agatha Christie story or in a Sherlock Holmes story. And, and you know, the same comes in, in a comic book story. The, the, you can't expect the mystery to really, really hold together, per se. But these are pretty good. And they're short, and if you don't like one, guess what? There's another one coming right up. So I, uh, and, and these are low stakes adventures, which, you know, it's not like the, the universe is about to be destroyed. This is no, this is let's stop the Joker from running down some pedestrians. Uh, and I don't think that's a negative in this case. These were done lighthearted and fun, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Excellent. Shall we jump into our ratings? All right, go for it. Well, I'm going to go 3.5 out of 5 on this. I thought this was really, really well done. We had a nice sampling of the villains. We had a Joker story, a Penguin story. We got to see Poison Ivy. We had some nice cameo appearances with Satana and Lois Lane. Got to see Dr. Phosphorus. Got well-written stories that held my interest and attention, along with some great artwork. So this is a solid 3.5 out of 5 for me. Yeah, I, I would give it the same. 3.5, I think I would go higher had uh, Poison Ivy been handled a little better. And if there was a little bit more background on Dr. Phosphorus, I would have liked a little more information there. But except for, for those two minor quibbles, I thoroughly enjoyed this. And I don't think this is a must read because this isn't, you know, the, you know, continuity isn't affected by these stories. But I would thoroughly recommend this to anybody that likes Batman as a detective. Sure. If you're a fan of Paul Dini or yep. if you like uh, the J.H. Williams uh, artwork and you may have forgotten about this particular uh, chapter that he did, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say it's a must for people of that venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't call it an overall must read, but I would highly recommend this. Fantastic. Well, Bat Books for Beginners is part of the BatmanUniverse.net network of podcasts. We offer all the Batman-based weekly comic book reviews, news, and some great podcasts, including the flagship comic podcast, Everyone Loves the Drake, Batgirl to Oracle, and so many more. If you like what we have to offer, please consider donating to us at the TBU Patreon account. You can find a link to our Patreon account on the BatmanUniverse.net website. Now, you can reach us. Both of us are on Twitter. Chris, where can they reach you at? Thanks, Jerry. I can be found at BTO and Bat Books. That's at BTO and Bat Books. Mm-hmm. And Jerry, 
I saw some interesting reviews when I was over on BatmanUniverse.net. In particular, uh, I really got to commend you because I really like what you're saying about the titles Batgirl and the Birds of Prey and Harley and Ivy meet Betty and Veronica. Yeah, yeah. So Batgirl and Birds of Prey really uh, just had the uh, manslaughter arc finish up, and I really enjoyed that arc. I thought that was terrific work. Oh, absolutely. And I was totally agree with you. Now, you can also be found on Twitter. Is that correct, my friend? That is correct. You can get me at Professor Frenzy. That's Professor Frenzy. And I cover my favorite DC books, uh, my favorite indie books. I do some Dark Shadows tweeting, some uh, horror movie tweeting that Chris and I both enjoy at uh, watching the MeTV Spangoolie movies, which you can you can catch us on Saturday nights. Uh, hashtag Spanguli. We had fun last night. Yes, we did. I was a little under the weather. Oh. Still a little under the weather, so I, my apologies, folks out there, if, if I sound a little bit uh, uh, not up to par or mm. worse than usual. Let's put it that way. I don't know if I've ever been on par. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, but, but here we are, yes. Uh, Spanguli, yeah. Uh, last night was the Invisible Woman, and I thought, mm. whoa, the straight up horror. No, we, we had Shem Howard running around yeah. in this. This was, this was fantastic, yeah. I, I, it was great, actually. I was expecting a real a – real, uh, Terrible movie, and it was yeah. Marker Hamilton was great. Yeah, I, 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 yeah John I, I, Barrymore. Yes, yeah. What a great cast! Great cast. Yeah. And actually, my wife came in and out, and she was like, "Ah, I wish I had seen this from the beginning. It was really funny. I had a great time." Yeah. So, so you you've been doing some uh, some other reviewing uh, at the the Batman universe too, haven't you? Yes, you can find me also on the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, uh, where I am a part of. I'm currently reviewing the Batman Adventures title. I'm having some fun with that. Uh, Starting soon, I'm going to review the title from the first issue, not just the Batgirl appearances. You can find that, Batgirl to Oracle. It's on, uh, you can use that on any, uh, I think it's on all the podcast feeds, and you can also find a link to the Batman Universe website, hosted by the Magnificent Stella, who does an outstanding job covering the Barbara Gordon Batgirl appearances, yeah. and it is just a great show, and I can't recommend it any higher. Definitely, and you're Speaking also of, oh, yeah, go ahead. You're, I was going to say you also do the, uh, a lot on Twitter with the I love the the Saturday morning funnies and all the the toys of yore that you've been doing. It's been fantastic. You know, boy. I, it, there are some I just can't cross. You know, I, I, I am so on the fence about you know because there are some that are just like, how did this get off the ground? So you know, true. Who, who in the boardroom approved the <laughs> mass manufacturing some of these things? But yeah, more more you know these these some of the toys I, I put on there. I, I'll, I'll post a story and just maybe a quick anecdote of this is something that I had or my me and my sister had or my sister had, and we this is something we had fun with back in the day. Uh, these may, maybe not were the best selling toys, mind you, but certainly something that uh, amused us for many hours. And uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Along with that, I'll, I'll post out a Saturday morning salute where uh, I recount uh, a TV listing in, in a show that I, I could remember watching. And I've also been tweeting out some holiday covers that are holiday themed uh, all through the month of December. So, yeah, just I am very nostalgic and I hope uh, you take a peek at it again at BT on Bad Books. Thank you very much for the plug, Jerry. I love it. Now, <clears throat> Chris and I are also, we follow a lot of other uh, podcasts and one of them is Cosmic Treadmill with uh, Chris Sheehan, who's on Twitter at Ace Comics and uh, Reggie Reggie uh, on Twitter as well. And they they discuss some classic comics with some fantastic detail. They do voices. They you know recount some of the scenes. Uh, and even if the comics isn't great, their commentary is always entertaining. 
We also been following, of course, the Sutherlands, who do a number of, uh, of comic book podcasts, including Warlord World, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Trekker Talk. And they have been doing a new one, haven't they, Chris? Yeah, it's called Sensational Sleuths, and I really recommend it, and I hope you check it out. Yeah. Sensational Sleuths looks at all fictional detectives from various genres. This is something that Darren Ruth recently started, and the first episode dealt with Sherlock Holmes. And being a Holmes aficionado myself, I listened with a lot of interest, and there were some facts that I wasn't even aware of, so they really did their research and homework. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I think a lot of fans of our show are also fictional detective fans. Yep. So be sure to check out Sensational Sleuths. It's, you're going to get an entertaining show, and you're going to learn something too. Great, great job. Yeah, terrific. You know, speaking of the Sutherlands, Jerry, we got a nice comment from Darren Sutherland. Yeah. He wrote in with regards to our last podcast, and Darren wrote, Hi, Chris and Jerry. I'm sorry to say that I think you got your holidays confused, <laughs> because surely you meant to cover this story for April Fool's Day instead of the <laughs> week before Christmas. I'm just sure this was a real – yes, thank you. A reference to the Nightwing. Uh, Darren goes on to say, I'm just sure that this was the story of the two of you made up, not any real (laughs) issues. Sure. Please tell me these aren't real stories. Uh, Darren continues, on a positive note, while I've enjoyed all of Jerry's wonderful songs, Uh, this Warren Zevon tribute to Werewolves of London is my favorite to date. uh, This is one of my favorite songs, and I was so very sad at the loss of Warren Zevon. When he was far too young. Thanks, Jerry, for the terrific tribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darren also continues, I'm very happy that both of you enjoyed Sensational Sleuths, and it meant the world to me when you said you took the time to listen to before recording your last episode. This is so very special. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll have to do an episode about Batman the Detective in the future. I know a couple of guys who might join us for that. <laughs> Take care, friends. Signed, Darren Sutherland. Thank you so much, nice. Darren. Thanks, Dan. Now we also, yeah, absolutely. We also had likes and retweets on our last show. Uh, the aforementioned Christianity's comics, the Batman at Universe at Batman Universe, Trucker Talk at Trucker Talk, Jody Yurden at Regal Fan, Paul Shanley at Paul Shanley, Kristen Clark at Chris Doodle seventy nine, Jeff Hunter at Jeff Hunt three four nine one one eight five five, Reggie Reggie at Reggie Reggie, Long Box of Darkness at Dark Long Box. Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Clinton Robinson at Coffee and Comics Blog, and Bayou Saproto at underscore Saproto Bayou. If I overlooked you, my sincere apologies and regrets. We have a loyal fan base of listeners that continues to grow, and if I overlooked you, please drop me a line via Twitter or by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us, and we'll be sure to include a mention to you on our next episode. Thank you very much for all your support. We sincerely appreciate it. We sure do. Well, thanks, Chris. That's all we have for today. Please join us in two weeks when Chris and I will cover Batman, Death in the City. My name is Jerry. And I'm Chris. And thank you for listening to Bat Books for Beginners. Bad Books for Beginners is a podcast. You're gonna like it, like it, like it, like it. Jerry and Chris talking Batman. Come and join us. Give it a listen. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners, the one-stop podcast for all your Bat family needs. If you like Batman, you'll love Bat Books for Beginners. Come on down and join us. Bad books for beginners.